Hey there, art lovers. Mike Hendley here, and I'm excited to welcome you back to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along on my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. I'll be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 104, Watercolors Meet Wanderlust, on Aliona Gastaldi's Artistic Pilgrimage. Hey everyone, welcome back. After a short little break, a little brief hiatus, I took a few weeks off for the summer just to kind of get some things done, work on a few things around the house, and uh, I think, to be honest, I was a little bit burnt out, and I'm just kind of discovering that now, and I almost, when you listen to this interview, you'll hear me kind of come to that realization, and uh, it wasn't until afterwards that I thought, wait a second, I think... Maybe that's what's happened. And so uh, it's been a bit of a struggle, but I am back. I actually uh, took the time off to get some stuff done around the house. I did a little bit of art. I had a couple injuries, just (laughs) minor things around the house that kind of knocked me down a little bit, but uh, all is good now. I honestly thought about, should I be devoting my time to the podcast or should I be devoting my time to creating art? And so I really struggled with that. I received a bunch of emails and messages from people without even suggesting I was thinking about this, telling me how much the podcast means to them and how much has helped in their journey, especially people who've come to art later in life. And I I realized the podcast is really part of where I'm at right now, and I can't stop doing it. I really enjoy speaking to these wonderful guests that have agreed to come on the show and share their journey, allow me to ask the questions I ask, and get up close and personal about their journey and what they've experienced and what they've learned, the tools and everything else. But I like to kind of get in behind it. And this interview for this week is a really good example of that, where I got so much out of this interview myself, and I'm hopeful that you'll get the same or at least one thing. I think if you leave one of these interviews and you learn just one thing, I think that's good. And uh, I'm not going to be too long in this uh, in this intro because it's a long interview, but I I did struggle with whether I should be doing this, and I have decided to continue doing it. You know, I wanted to keep doing it, but I did go through that kind of thought process about should I, and so I'm going to continue doing it. It's been wonderful. I think that I can get my art in between episodes done. And I do have a full-time job, so the struggle I have is really just my time. And I got a promotion at work, which means that I have more responsibility and more stress. Yay! (laughs) And uh, so that means that I'm a little bit more distracted. But I think I can find a place for my job in my art. And I've said this before, it's not finding a space for art in my job. It's the other way around. I'm an artist first, and my job comes second, and my job helps to fund some of the stuff that I'm doing, including this podcast, month to month. And so I um, have to take it for what it is. And so I just wanted to to talk about that because I did, it was just, there's a lot, and I'll talk about some of the stuff I've been working on, but it was a really uh, challenging time, and I feel so much better now, having the time off has been fantastic. Having recorded this intro, I now have four podcasts recorded. And so I've got a good lineup heading into the fall. And I'm really excited about uh, this 
guest as well as the next ones. I think you're really going to enjoy this. And uh, so, yeah, so we're on this journey together. More to come. And I just thought I'd give you that quick update as to what I was doing and why I was doing it. And we're back and we're good. So the Wild Wonder Conference, that's put on by the Wild Wonder Foundation with uh, John Muir Laws. This conference is coming up September 13th to 17th. I'm speaking on the Sunday. So I'm doing a class on graphite. I'm going to cover all the tools and how you can use it in nature journaling. So I hope that you will make it for that and for this whole conference. There's 30 plus speakers, wonderful people. Uh, the group that puts this on, all of the volunteers do such incredible work, such a like it's a really well-oiled machine when it comes to putting this all together. So it's not just the speakers, it's everyone else that puts the time in for this. And I think it's going to be a fantastic conference. It starts on Wednesday, runs runs through uh, Sunday. And all of the uh, sessions are recorded with Zoom and they'll be there, I think, till April of 2024. So if you sign up and you have a day job and you can't hit those during the week, you can always go back and watch them again. And the thing I'll be doing each day is there's a pencil miles thing that happens at, I think, lunch Pacific around that time. And the point of this is it's like a Zoom call. And so everyone hits into this Zoom room. And then the organizer, which is typically Avea, but it may be others that I want to call her out on this, but uh, will separate out breakout rooms. And so the breakout rooms will be around themes or tools or whatever the case, whatever they choose. And so I'm going to be there for every single pencil mile, so all five of them. And I'll see where I end up. I'm going to actually probably talk about graphite for sure on Sunday. Maybe I'll do another one. Maybe... Uh, I'll join someone else's. I don't know. But if you want to hang out with me, I will be at these Pencil Miles uh, breakout rooms. And if you feel the need to uh, to kind of chat about something or want to show off your, your sketchbook or whatever the case, I'll be there and we can uh, do all of that. So I'm really looking forward to this conference. I hope to see you there. Tickets are still available. And the link is in the uh, show notes, but you can find them easily. Just Google Wild Wonder Conference and you'll find them there as well. And uh, I really enjoyed it last year, and that's why I wanted to come back, and that's why I wanted to speak, because it's uh, it's such a wonderful initiative, and there's so many wonderful speakers. It's going to be fantastic. So the other thing that's starting coming up soon as well is my Etcher course. It is a six-week course about kind of working on beginner to intermediate level graphite. So if you've worked with pencil before, you'll be able to do this. And I'm going to be talking about how to draw animals. So everything, the first class is around all the tools that I use and talking about special tools to help that help make a difference and then I cover animal anatomy at a really high level just understanding structure and muscles and things like that so it's it's not I'm not going to be talking about skeletons and, and muscle groups or anything like that I, I think that can cloud things a little bit for somebody who just wants to draw animals but I think just being mindful of those is what I'm going to cover in in the second class and then I'm going to talk about proportion and composition I will spend a little time on composition just to talk about rule of thirds and the Fibonacci and all that kind of stuff that's important to kind of understanding how things uh, are laid out and, and leading people through your image. And then I'm going to talk about depth and dimension and uh, textures and movement and environment. And so it's all going to be a fantastic kind of six-week course. And then the seventh course, or seventh, should say, class is a review and critique. So it's an opportunity for you to, in the sixth class, kind of think about what you're going to draw and create. And then for the seventh class, I will talk through and, and provide my feedback on what you've done. So it's exciting. It'll be um, kind of simu-live, as Etcher says. So there'll be an opportunity for questions in that if you watch it live. And then it'll be there 
if you decide to watch it in three months, six months, a year, whatever the case. So I'm looking forward to that being launched. So once again, that's in the show notes as well. I am considering making this podcast a YouTube video. Not this specific episode, but I am thinking about talking to some future guests who I haven't recorded yet to see if they want a YouTube version. So there would still be audio. This audio podcast is not going away. But I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have myself and the guest and you can see us and see us talk and see us lift up the tools and the things that we do. And in addition to having the audio podcast. So I'm going to ask one of my future guests that and we'll see where that goes. If you think this is of interest or you think it's not, if you've got a strong opinion either way, let me know. Send me a DM or email me at mike at mikehenley.com and let me know. I would be curious to hear what you think, but I'm going to at least try one or two and see what, what people think. So I think that would be kind of fun. And at this point, let's head into the interview. I discovered my guest this week via listener and was immediately blown away with her work. Her playful use of watercolors and urban sketching is incredible. In fact, she is in the book, The World of Urban Sketching, by previous guest, Stephanie Bauer. Similar to Stephanie, Aliona comes from the world of architecture, but her journey is quite colorful, and her path to where she is now is by no means a simple straight line. She has visited many parts of the world as student, artist, designer, and curious traveler. Her love of art is infectious, and her knowledge is extensive. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Aliona Castaldi. Well done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hi, Mike. <laughs> Hi. How nice are you? you? I'm great. Thank you. Good morning in here in Singapore. Good evening for you. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining me. It was so funny that I, I came across you because I have a, a listener and a follower on Instagram by the name of Kathy. I'm not going to share her last name. Uh, who said, oh, you have to check out Aliona's profile. And I looked and I was just like, oh my God, this stuff's amazing. Like, what an interesting person. And then I realized I've got your art with me because you're in Stephanie Bauer's book that I have. And (sighs) I flipped through that and I found you in there as well. So I'm so happy that you said yes to coming on the podcast. This is... uh, the return podcast from being off for a few weeks. And I couldn't think of a better way to kind of start into uh, to the next run of uh, podcasts. So thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. That's absolutely my pleasure. And thank you to Kathy for bringing me in. <laughs> <laughs> I love when listeners do this. They're like, Mike, I love your podcast. But can you talk to this one person? Because I'd like to hear them <laughs> talk about their stories. So that's what we're going to do. So I always like to... Uh, explore kind of the the roots, the beginnings of creativity, because I think that, and I've said this before, but I think it's important to highlight, you know, the reason that I like to do this is because I think we find commonalities, we find connections. The listeners will find connections in in our journey, in their journey, and think, I'm just like them. And so I, I like to expose it that way. And so I'm curious for you, when you were young and growing up, were you always a creative? Were you always interested in kind of creativity and art Uh, more than just kids drawing on walls (laughs) and coloring books? (laughs) I don't think I drew on walls. No, I actually don't think I was creative. I was really good at copying. I was following my cousin in there because we exchanged letters and in each letter she would put a cartoon that she would copy from a magazine or somewhere. And she had really good magazines for that and I didn't. So all I had is a Disney 
illustrated with Disney um, cartoons medical encyclopedia for kids. (laughs) (laughs) So I copied things from there and I got really, really good at copying. But I was never ever good at imaginary things like when kids draw, you know, all kind of stuff. I didn't do that. I would figure out how to draw one thing and I would keep drawing it until I got sick of it, like an elephant. I remember drawing elephants. They're so funny. It was something with the floor that um, was there when I built the shape of an animal in um, just a few lines, and I got so much thrill out of that that I got stuck on that topic for weeks and weeks and weeks. So, no, I, was, I don't think I was creative. I liked books, uh, especially fairy tales and adventures, and that's what I did. I read a lot. But no, I can't say I was painting from my childhood. So uh, that's interesting. You talk about Disney because, uh, I, I, you know, I was impacted as well. I remember trying to draw Mickey Mouse and Tom and Jerry and all that kind of stuff as a kid. And uh, it's amazing <laughs> how much Disney's have had, had an impact on all of us, right? And giving us that. Absolutely. When I grew up, it was the, it was the only foreign cartoon that was so accessible you know um, I grew up in the Soviet Union so we had uh, the Tom and Jerry and uh, things like Beauty and the Beast and all these on tape on videotape so I rewatched them all over and over and over again this uh, like one of the little bit of foreign influence that you could get with actually good illustration you know was there any, so here's a question for you, like being uh, behind the art and curtain, was creativity fostered? Was was there an equivalent thing that kids would draw or be attached to that would kind of foster imagination and creativity? Was there an equivalent to that that inspired you as a kid? You mean in education or somewhere? Or entertainment or like, was there an equivalent for Tom and Jerry or Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. where there's... Were there not, things not, like that that were directed for kids? Not much, I think. Uh, there, there was uh, there were books, so uh, Soviet kids were really good with their reading, usually. And there were a lot of books with very serious illustrate, illustrations, you know. They, are not made, they were not really made for kids. They were not colorful, they were black and white, they were really well executed. My favorite book was not by a Russian illustrator. Uh, it was uh, a book of fairy tales. And um, I don't remember, the, um, it was Adrian Segur, or I might be pronouncing completely wrong. It was, uh, it was like a book of fairy tales illustrated with such detailed illustrations, so beautifully. And every person in there seemed like, you know, from somewhere in Netherlands. Uh, it was absolutely stunning. And I kept looking at these illustrations again and again and again. It was so detailed, so... Uh, there was a decorative quality to that, and I also liked Russian fairy tales, fairy tale illustrators as well. They were really good, especially um, like Bilibin and uh, Vasnetsov. So it, there was always a really good quality of art that, if if it surrounded me, it was really really good quality, really skilled, you know, never sloppy. Now kids have books with like whatever illustrations, you know. So I grew up on serious stuff, uh, but <laughs> I wasn't part of that. <laughs> well, it's good that you were exposed to it. I mean, uh, you know, being exposed to something that that sounds like it's almost fine art or medical illustration is is uh, is incredible. <laughs> Versus, I don't think my uh, parents meant to. <laughs> <laughs> it was accident, accidental, but I think we had a few of these books. Did you pursue creativity in school? 
like, you know, when you go into the later grades that was creativity or design, uh, that's something that kind of triggering you as to, you know, when your parents or whomever was like, okay, Eliano, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? <laughs> no, what were you thinking uh, about? <laughs> okay, I know when I first wanted to be a veterinarian because I liked cats and then and I was never allowed to have any pets at home so I wanted to be closer to them then half a year later I was going to be a lawyer uh, you know so the creativity was never part of it uh, at all to be honest I didn't go to an art school I went to a music school and it was also serious schooling like any schooling in Russia it was full time you know <laughs> full-time a second school uh, you get to learn something so some people go to art school some people go to music school whenever you see a russian woman she usually plays something or went to a dance school an art school of some kind it was pretty much a must for middle class uh, soviet people you know so i i played a violin so there was not much time for art and that i didn't consider as a possible profession either <laughs> you know it was just something that I was made to do pretty much <laughs> do, you, do you still do it uh I I have a violin and I play very rarely but it's been almost 20 years and I still remember whole pieces that I used to play this is how serious the education was <laughs> <laughs> it was drilled into me. Uh, but the art came much later. Uh, in school, I used to do, you know, the, there are these posters you, you can draw for school for these announcements or like the newspapers. There was no print at that time. So we would draw these affiches, you know, by hand. And I would help because I would be generally good at copying stuff and doing all the things. I had good handwriting, uh, but I could never, like, it from scratch or imagine something new <laughs> so right. i did that because i i just could that's uh yeah it was hard back then <laughs> trying to uh, to be creative and <laughs> and distribute it to people yeah it was just not something in in my head that i i have to do it i came to learn how to paint and draw later when i was applying for architecture school in my hometown and the exams were um, academic painting, you know, and academic drawing of a gypsum head of Apollo or whoever, you know. So these were supposed to be exams, and I had no idea how to do that. So nine months before, I went to courses, like a pre-course for drawing and painting with that university, and that's when I actually learned how to do that. And nine months was enough to scale up to being the top of the class when I applied for that university. That's amazing. So I, I got all the distinctions for all these creative exams after just nine months of learning how to do that. <laughs> I think this is going to be a, a common theme in what you do, is that uh, you can do anything that you want and you've done everything that you've wanted to do. As, right? as long as I focus on that, yes, uh, suddenly, all of a sudden, yeah. It's never a long-term project, for sure. <laughs> So what turned you on to architecture? What was it about architecture that made you think, that's better than being a veterinarian? <laughs> oh, that was, that one actually is funny. It was my laziness, really, because uh, I wasn't allowed to go study outside of my hometown. So I had three universities to choose from. Uh, one of them was where I eventually studied, the Agricultural Academy. 
they had an architectural course that the, was the only one that had no relation to arch, uh, agriculture at all. And uh, they built that this amazing models of houses and they displayed them so when you go and visit the the academy you could see what the architecture students are doing you know all these projects they were hand-drawn or and there were all these building models of the projects and I said oh I want to do like that you know I, I really want to do that and that was also the only course that I was remotely interested at in that didn't require me passing exams on mathematics or physics or chemistry or all this really hard science stuff. I, I wasn't bad at those, but I had really hard time studying for this. So for the study for the exams, something that is non-humanitarian was really hard for me. I dismissed it right away. I'm like, nope, not doing these exams, not even trying to prepare for them, not good, boring, you know, uh, no, not doing that. So the architecture course was the only one that didn't require that. Uh, it was only a literature exam that was taken from school that I already would have, and then uh, four exams on these creative subjects uh, from like construction drawing to these things, and that was my entire reason for going to architecture <laughs> not because i really wanted to be an architect <laughs> it sounds like the best reason to do it though so i, I, I know I totally why not right that. exactly that's fantastic. who knows who they want to be when they're kids i don't know very few people know what they want to be really so how long was the program then it was six years it was six years yeah it was challenging uh, I always had trouble with academic studies, especially the higher up it got, the more self-study it required, and the plus I was able to do that. Um, uh, I couldn't focus on things that don't interest me, and there was there's usually little sense in some bits of that kind of education, which is very comprehensive. Um, so it was hard for me to study things that I didn't see applying to me at all. Uh, I was good at that, though, but I was very hectic in my studies. I was even uh, kicked out of the university on the fourth grade just because I didn't show up for exams. And the faculty secretary decided to teach me a lesson saying, you're so talented and you're not uh, using up your potential. I'm going to teach you a lesson. So she kicked me out. Um, <laughs> she kicked me out, even though I, I still don't think it was quite legal to do but you know who knows <laughs> uh, so I came to um, I came back to the university in September or August saying okay I, I'm ready for these exams because usually you can catch up with exams by like, in September if you miss them for some reason and she's like you out you know and I studied on government grants, right? Because when I applied for the university I was so good that I studied for free so that kicked me out of that program and uh, my parents had to pay for me for another two years. I returned to the same level. I passed all the exams and all everything that need, needed to be passed to get back, I did it in one week. So I was there. I was ready. Everything was ready. I just didn't show up. <laughs> so I came back and I, joined, I rejoined the course on a paid basis and I really struggled for the next two years even more because then I was labeled as a bad student and to overcome that kind of bias was really really hard. I think that was the first time in my life when I was taught to work hard because before that I didn't have to. 
you know, everything just came easy to me. I just kind of just handled it ad hoc, uh, not really focusing on it much, you know, devising the ways to just do it quickly and get it out of my way. But for the last two years in the university, I had to really, really study hard to get back in people's opinions. I don't think I ever did. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's a, an interesting way to make it more challenging for yourself. But I mean, the <sighs> fact that you... Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> So you finished that, and and maybe you've already answered this a little bit. What did you think about it when you were done? Did you think, that was great. Now I'm going to go do this for a while somewhere? Like, what was your uh, thought having finished that that program? I don't think I ever did something that required long-term planning until probably recently. <laughs> you know, I have, because now I have my own business, I have to plan. But before that, I just kind of went with the flow, so... Because of my ability to choose challenges and go places where nobody goes because it's not comfortable, I managed to get an invitation or a recommendation to a restoration studio in St. Petersburg as uh, my pre-diploma practice first because I was working with a teacher who taught restoration, uh, like city, city redevelopment or city conservation of historical areas that was not a subject we were taught for a really long time it was like a half a year course just an overview and I chose uh, my thesis based on that because I knew nobody would go there and I like that I like that so uh, and because I really was interested in the topic I really dug into it and I was quite good when I I was done my uh, diploma professor recommended me to to that studio that was led by his own like um, study mentor, you know, and uh, I I did I did go. So it was in Saint Petersburg. Uh, it was a thousand kilometers from my hometown, and I went. You know, <laughs> so uh, I think I just never really missed a chance when it was given me, and I said, why not? You know, what I, what what's holding me back? Nothing, you know apart from fears, but that was never important. So for me, when I think about Russia, I, I think I think about St. Petersburg. I mean, of all the places, I would just love to visit St. Petersburg. And I'm thinking because of the architecture and the age, and it's just all of that. Beautiful. When you went there a thousand kilometers from home, what was your impression of St. Petersburg? Did it feel like a different part of the world, or did you know enough about it that it was all familiar? Like, what was that experience, especially somebody who was in architecture heading to a place like that? What was that like? It was splendid. I've never been to St. Petersburg before I went there. I didn't know much about it. Uh, also, story of my life. I just go. <laughs> I just go and I figure it out. So, I, yeah, I just went. I had someone to live with, uh, and that was about that. So I had a place to live and I had a job or I had, yeah, I had a job offer. Uh, so I just went and it was beautiful. It's uh, it's the one city in Russia that is completely different from all others because it was built to be European. It was built to look European. Uh, Italian architects w worked on, on that, you know. And then the projects from St. Petersburg were distributed all across Russia into smaller towns so it was an example of proper european architecture so it felt really good you know it's it's beautiful especially the city center the streets are wide you know um i absolutely loved it i lived there for 
I think about five or six years. Wow. I just, um, I just must be a mind blowing place, especially now being, you know, in urban sketching and, and doing all that kind of work as well to, to go back to a place like St. Petersburg and approach it from that direction. Have you been back since you left? I have been back a few times, yeah. The problem with St. Petersburg that the weather is very, very unpredictable. So I wasn't lucky with that both times that I went. Because <laughs> <laughs> the summer there, it's probably one month a year. You know? Oh, wow. <laughs> the rest is rains and stuff. And so you decided to move to to where you are now, where it's mostly summer. I moved. <laughs> the funny part is that uh, after St. Petersburg, I moved to London. So I went to study for one year in the University of the Arts, London. I went to study there and I found London sunny and dry when I went there. Uh, hmm. After St. Petersburg, uh, I found London sunny and dry. Uh, so that, that tells you something about the weather. What did you think of London? I mean, to go from St. Petersburg, and, and once again, from an architectural perspective, arriving in Heathrow and then taking a look around as you get to, to London, and like, what was that like? I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> from the first glance, I absolutely hated it. Uh, first of all, because I arrived on Sunday, Sunday, and uh, after some uh, terrorist acts or something, they removed all the trash bins from the city center. And also the people don't work on weekends, right? So, so there, was, there was no cleaning. So it was so dirty. It was so dirty. And that was my first impression that London was so dirty. It was cleaned up every Monday. Of course, it wasn't like that all the time. Uh, but it was really bad. And then it was, after St. Petersburg, it was really, really claustrophobic. I almost got under the bus because I didn't walk fast enough uh, across the road, you know. Uh, my friends pulled me onto the pavement <laughs> uh, a second before the bus. The, the double-decker just rushed past me, you know, at a full speed. I still don't know how they ran so quickly on these narrow streets, you know. Always felt like they would hit the lamp posts, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that was urban sketching that got me to love it. Oh, really? Did you start urban sketching then when you were in London or did you begin in St. Petersburg? I began a little bit in St. Petersburg when I was learning English and I used Urban Sketcher's blog to read and practice my reading because uh, the easiest way to study for me is reading and reading something. I enjoy reading. So sketching was the new topic that I just discovered. So I read Urban Sketcher's blog as a way to practice, you know. And uh, because I was reading it and I was on there so much, I started sketching myself, tried here and there. And so by the time I went to London, I was already sketching a little bit, you know, fairly regularly. Uh, can't say quite badly. It was okay. I, I was an architect after all, you know, so right. I, I had some kind of sense of perspective and how to do things. Uh, but uh, yeah, I moved to, to London and I showed my sketchbook to, prof to my professor and she looked at it, you know, without much interest. And she, she asked me, why are you sketching? Why are you drawing? And I couldn't answer, you know. And it stuck in my head that I failed to answer such a simple question. And after that, I became obsessed with finding out why am I sketching. So I ended up sketching a lot. And because I was focused not on the quality of my drawings, not on the, on, on, on the outcome, right? Uh, I was focused on trying to 
find what I loved so much in a scene that I wanted to sketch it. I refocused from the negative attitude towards the city to a more positive way of thinking of that, like what is it I love here in that scene? And that completely pivoted uh, my view on London very quickly. That's, that's so interesting that uh, you did. I mean, maybe maybe you got, you know, maybe the answer was that you're around the people that you shouldn't be around in the sense that yeah. you needed to be around people that appreciated urban sketching and sketching sketchbooks and all of that. Right. And absolutely. Your community yeah. is absolutely crucial for, uh, fostering that, um, that's love to, to what you do. Yes. You were in London for a year and then where yeah, did you end year. up after that? After that, I came back to Russia and I didn't want to go back to restoration, uh, or the type of interior design that I used to do there, which was uh, very beautiful, you know, <laughs> it was too beautiful, too traditional. Um, so I wanted to do modern interior design, and I knew that after this education. So I went to Moscow, and I found a job there. Uh, so I spent uh, two, about two and a half years working in Moscow. Were you still sketching? I was still sketching, yes. I was teaching by that time. Okay. Uh, so I started teaching first private classes, and then I was invited to do classes in different establishments, like um, art schools and stuff. And then I was invited to teach in an online university. It was a government-accredited online university. So I taught sketching for interior designers in there. And then I was briefly an in invited lecturer sketching tutor in a British, um, there is a British College of um, Design in Moscow. So I briefly taught there before moving to Singapore. Did you let that a person in, in London know that this is why I sketch and do you want to come take a course <laughs> so I could teach you? Oh my God, uh, this question, uh, yes, I, I don't know. <laughs> now that I'm going to be thinking of that, uh, I think she she knows why I'm sketching now and she knows that I'm not. Yeah, because uh, my professors were the most supportive people when I studied. I didn't follow the curriculum of the course at all. I, uh, yeah, I just wanted to have fun and do what I do. And my professor completely encouraged me in that. Even though I couldn't get a distinction at the end of the course, he said, you know, I can't give you a distinction because I can't evaluate you according to the curriculum, but please do what you keep, keep doing what you're doing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. You're completely on the right track. So I, I got my diploma. Uh, but uh, it was, yeah, it set me right on a on the right track to follow what I wanted to do and to be sure in that and being able to defend myself when people ask why you're doing that. Right. I, I think that's the concern that some people have and some people reflect on when they go to art school or any kind of training is that it, it kind of takes part of, like the, the intent is that it grows you, right? I mean, it's, especially universities, they tend to teach you how to learn, right? That's why universities are really good is because it's not necessarily the, the content, it's they teach you how to learn, they teach you how to break down and move forward. And I've heard from a few, quite a few art people who, when they've gone to art school, they feel like they get the art beaten out of them, right? That they go in with a, a an assumption of what things should be, and then they leave, and it's like, I'm, I'm not the person I wanted to be, and then they reflect, and they do something else. But it sounds like you were you for everything, right? That you did it your way, you got the you got the diploma that you wanted, right? 
There was uh, actually it was still an interior design diploma, and I failed to choose. I was choosing. I had a chance to pick between interior design and illustration, and I still picked interior design. <laughs> that was one of my attempts to pivot that failed because it was too out there. You know, uh, that's first of all. Second of all, the uh, I completely uh, I, they. Not in London, but when I graduated from the academy, we had the art classes there, quite serious uh, classes as well. That completely beat the art out of me. You know, I haven't painted or drew anything for several years after I graduated until I got to London. So that question of why, you know, set off a new wave of me wanting to do something with my art. But it wasn't about art. It was about learning about myself. Right. Right. Uh, plus, that was a course that was not designed to be academic. It was a very unique course that was designed by Professor Pe- Peter Stickland. Uh, it was designed for people who wanted to pivot. It was a, a one-year postgrad diploma course that was designed for people to experiment and get out there. So we had one person um, who ended up writing poetry as her. Uh, final work, you know, and it was an interior designer course. So uh, it was huh. very, very unique course that I think I'm grateful for that course precisely for where I'm right now. So why did you choose interior design instead of illustration? <laughs> because my thought is I don't need to learn how to draw, you know, I already know that. I just need to do more of that. But I can always learn more about interior design. I was so wrong. Just a disclaimer, I was so wrong in that logic, but that's what I was thinking. And also, um, there was a bit of, um, there is a bias that is called, I forgot how it's called, but it's when you think that you spend so much time on something that you can't drop it. I was completely in on that. So I spent so many years studying and with my struggles being kicked out, you know, I just couldn't allow myself to for that to go to waste as I thought it would be. So interesting. You're in Russia, you're teaching, and you're teaching people how to sketch (laughs) and draw. Uh, What's next in your journey? Uh, I was working as a corporate interior designer, so I was designing offices as a full-time job while doing the art on the sides. Um, And I was pretty much stuck there until my company announced that they're going to close the office in Moscow. And we had a deadline. I had about, uh, we had at least half a year uh, prior warning for that. So I knew that, okay, I need to do something. I need to, I felt the need to get out of Russia. I really wanted to go back to London. At the time I graduated, they canceled the visas that allowed you to stay for a year after studying. So that was just the year when they canceled that. So that's why I couldn't stay. That's why I couldn't uh, couldn't stay and return to Russia. So I really wanted to go back. And with the new experience, I felt like I could because my experience was in English. It was international. Uh, I did really good projects. So I worked with... Uh, I was introduced to a um, headhunter who lived in London. And we started to look. He took me on and we started to look for a job for me in London and at some point, he said, Alena, you know, it's it might be really difficult to find a job for you in London because of all the politics that are going on. And he suggested me to look uh, towards Asia or uh, Dubai, you know, this kind of country, saying that there is a lot of work going on there. 
And I couldn't say no, because my reasoning was, again, I don't know anything about these places. So how, how can I say no to something I have no idea about? You know, it didn't feel fair to come up with excuses. Why wouldn't I go there? It sounded like a perfect adventure to go somewhere I've never been. (laughs) I've done that before, you know, twice. (laughs) So I said, yeah, sure, let's go for it. So he got me uh, a few interviews. Two of them were in Singapore. I realized that, okay, seems like I'm moving to Asia. I don't know why I decided that. There was nothing sure about these interviews. So I decided, okay, I'm moving to Asia. That means that maybe I can focus on that. And that was a new direction. I woke up one morning thinking, thinking that, uh, all right, it's now or never. And I, I literally, I'm in bed, no plans I had whatsoever, just knowing that I'm going to lose a job in a few months. And I'm writing my landlord that I'm going to move out in a month. And then I put my phone down and think, damn, what have I done? <laughs> What am I going to do? And yeah, I just had to act. So I put myself in a corner, in a position where I had absolutely no choice but do something about it. And I did. As always, I just found a way. You know, it was really stressful, but I found a way. I moved to Koh Samui first. It's in Thailand. Um, Just because I looked at the map somewhere between Singapore and Hong Kong, you know, and Bangkok, triangulated. That was Koh Samui. I did not know it's an expensive island. I did not know that flights there are more expensive than anywhere else in Asia. (laughs) You know, and I just rented a place for a month and I went with two suitcases. The small one with clothes because uh, my clothes, because I was going to a warm country, right? And then a big one with my art materials. Because I was prepared to work from there until I get a job. I got invited for a second interview two days after I arrived. Then uh, a week later, I had a job offer. And I spent the rest of the time in Koh Samui just resting and sketching like mad wow. person, you know. So I spent a month there just waiting for my visa in the end. So that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's awesome. How long ago was that? It was seven years ago. Yeah, it's been seven years in Singapore. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a story. Did you move, like you said, you're working for yourself now. Were you not working for yourself before? Were you like, so what was that transition like? And what were you doing? Yeah, absolutely no. You can't really um, go to Singapore and be a freelancer. It cannot happen. I. Uh, you cannot live here illegally, how people, a lot of freelancers live in Thailand or Bali, you know. You can't really do visa runs uh, to the border. It's very strict country in terms of the visas. So I could only live here if I work for a company. So I did, right? So art was a hobby for a really long time. I thought now and then, you know, uh, was not a lot of money, so it was okay. My company knew about that, um, it was so art was still a hobby while I was working. I changed a few companies. So up until last year in November, I was full-time working as an interior designer, first in corporate interior design. I did big offices for big famous tech companies. Uh, then I uh, got tired of that. So new company I joined didn't have this kind of projects, uh, and I was not interested in 
uh, what they had. So I switched to <laughs> I switched to hospitality group. So I did luxury hospitality for two or three years. Yeah, it was really fun. It was a lot of fun. So uh, and then I burned out really badly, and uh, I got married by that time. And that gave me an opportunity to be on a dependent visa, which is another option for a person to live in Singapore, is to be dependent on someone who has an employment pass. Uh, so my husband is also a foreigner here on an employment pass, so I was able to switch the dependent pass. And that eventually allowed me to um, establish my own business and work on that. That's fantastic. So you're now working for yourself, and you've been doing this for... yes. Not too long. I've been doing that for, yeah, not too long. I started, I quit in November. I launched my business. It took me half a year to recover my health, more or less, after the uh, grueling career of interior designer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I launched my business in, uh, I applied for a permission to run my business in May. I got it in June. So it's brand new, just a few months. Wow. And so what is your business now? So can you describe what you're doing at this point? I'm a full-time artist, uh, so I position myself uh, not as an urban sketcher anymore, even though I do do that, and my teaching a lot of it still involves urban sketching because um, you can't dismiss the base you build your career on, right? So it was a, something to give me a jump start. Uh, but uh, now I'm officially a watercolor artist, and that's what I do. That's fantastic. I paint paintings, paint pictures. I travel, travel for that sometimes. Sometimes I don't. And uh, uh, I do a little bit of murals for corporate spaces sometimes um, since I have a lot of connections in that area as well. So that's uh, full-time art, no interior design at all at the moment. <laughs> not ready to do that again. That's so good. happy not to be in office environments uh, for now might change with the future who knows you know but yeah full-time art that's fantastic and i'm going to so we're going to jump into i'm going to ask you questions about materials and all that but i noticed on your website uh because i just found this interesting you talked about that you've read all the dune books oh yeah and... i did <laughs> <laughs> so was this as a kid or was this recent like how much of a sci-fi nerd are you uh, I think, well, it is fairly recent. I started reading a lot of books when I learned enough English to read the books in the regional. So I started with uh, Roald Dahl, which was easy. I read everything I could find. Then I quickly switched from Roald Dahl to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> very smooth transition from kind of kids' books to uh, some serious literature. Um, because I always liked the challenge. And it kind of bugged me that I can't enjoy a book. So my English is not high enough to, well, good enough to enjoy the books uh, on the level that I want. So I read a lot. And it's also, for me, it's the way to learn a language is read a lot. So I started when I was about 26 with reading, and I think I, I got, yeah, I never stopped. And I was mostly sci-fi ever since. <laughs> Fantasy and sci-fi in English, yeah. Are you still reading? I'm still reading a lot, yeah. I uh, just read for the first time The Hitchhiker's Guide, Guide to the Galaxy. Awesome. It took me several attempts to do that yeah. because it's also the British humor and all that. It takes another 
level in, in the language to appreciate. And I think I finally got it after seven years of living in an English-speaking country. <laughs> nice. So I finally finished that one. Have you read Asimov's uh, Foundation series or any of those books? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all of them. I'm like, I'm a serial reader. I hate changing authors. So okay. I tend to find the ones that are very prolific and wrote a lot. And I just start from the beginning and I don't stop until I've read everything that I find of them. Uh, and for me, the lack of, the, the uncomfortable feeling that I get uh, by searching for a new author to read, it's even worse than reading books that are not so good because every author has the, every writer has good books and that has the ones that are kind of meh. Uh, So I'd rather read through bad bad books than look for a new writer to read. So whatever uh, writer wrote really long series, I probably read it or about to read, yeah. I'm on oh, Terry Pratchett at the moment. Oh, that's that's yeah. fun. That's interesting. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if you're watching the Foundation series on Apple TV, but uh, I think they're doing a fantastic. There is job. a Foundation series on Apple yes. TV. Yeah. Oh my God! I I will have too many subscriptions and absolutely no time to watch them, and I will have them all. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's season two. So uh, I think it's about seven episodes in. I think the seasons are like 10 or 12 episodes. Um, It's supposed to, like I had heard rumor they were doing seven seasons of this. But uh, it's a really interesting version of the Foundation series. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's... Of course, it's not aligned to the books, right? No, no. So it's it's different. uh, But I think it's better in some ways. I didn't read the whole Foundation series, so... You did better than I did, um, but I, I think it's I think it's really well done. Uh, I would say it's up. I don't know if you've read um, the Expanse um, series of books. Um, I did, tal- yeah. Tal- yeah. <laughs> I think um, I did. Actually, most of them I read in the past two or three years at the most. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah I. Read I I, I read, uh, I don't know if there's more than three. I read the first three and then I watched the series and yeah. uh, the series was fantastic. I love that kind of sci-fi. Um, so anyways, I just wanted to talk about sci-fi for a little bit because I saw that it's yeah. like, I can't, we, we should be talking art, but sci-fi is important. No, um, absolutely. I also worked in an IT department for uh, a year or two when I was uh, studying in the academy. So I was a bit nerdy kid. Yeah. <laughs> Playing World of Warcraft and uh, oh yeah, that's my know. pandemic life. We, in fact, we had dates with my husband. Well, now husband and boyfriend. We had dates in World of Warcraft because we couldn't visit each other during lockdowns. You nice. know, nice. so we went uh, we went out fishing and questing and all that. So. And not <laughs> the serious gaming that people tend to do. Like I didn't go to dungeons for a few years. You know, but um, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> do that's all cool. that. Let's circle back to kind of what you're known for more recently, and that's the urban sketching and, and the watercolor work. And maybe you can talk about, maybe we'll talk about both sides of it, because I want to respect the fact that your focus is kind of the fine art, the watercolor that you're doing now, but there's that urban sketching side that you've you've done, probably you're still doing and teaching. So we can kind of separate them a little bit, but I just want to understand, I think for the listener, when it comes to the urban sketching Maybe we could just start with what kind of tools you like to use recently. Like, what are your preferred 
Uh, let's start with the paper or the sketchbook. And, mm-hmm. you know, is it hot press, cold press? Is it, do you go by sheets or do you buy a book or like <laughs> that kind of idea? Right. Yeah, that one's easy. I was quite, I, I'm quite, um, I'm quite traditional in the materials that I use. Uh, that means that I found my materials uh, a while back and I stick to them because I was done being frustrated with new paper every time a new tool, you know. Uh, so I uh, I was using Lamy pens for a really long time uh, with a converter for uh, for the ink that I use a waterproof ink mostly carbon carbon black. Oh, the platinum carbon. Yeah, yeah, the platinum. Yeah, 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 yeah that one. Okay. I'm gonna blank out on some of the names. It's uh, okay. Because I like I use this. Uh, I use these tools. I don't read them. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, I was using this uh, the pen for a really long time, and I just didn't see why I would change. I know there are all other options out there. I heard really good things so about Twisby pens, but apart from Lamy and a few collectible pens that I have, I don't use any others. And then collectible pens, I use them so they don't just go stale, you know, in my drawer. They need to be used. They want to be out. So I treat them as like life things, <laughs> you know. They need to go for work. So I put different ink in all my collectible pens and I just sometimes just draw with them. But uh, yeah, Lamy pen with carbon, uh, platinum carbon ink. And the paper? The paper I use, I prefer uh, one sketchbook that I really like is Koval sketchbooks. They're done by, they're made by Tom Caval. He makes them himself by hand. Uh, so supporting a small business as well. Mm-hmm. He lives in Poland and his sketchbooks, are, they're quite pricey, to be fair. For a lot of artists, it's quite pricey. Uh, but the, he uses professional watercolor paper in that. And the difference between professional paper and non-professional paper for me is drastic. The ease with which I can sketch on professional paper and the way looks the outcome is just so more gratifying <laughs> so yes. i prefer spending a bit more money on my tools rather than struggle with bad quality and think it's me who is bad not the tool because you rarely blame the tool uh, but actually tools are very important when when you use them especially in the beginning it's it can make a world of difference for for me for now i can draw on printing paper with the same results, right? And people will like it. But when I started, I think it was, it played a big difference in my self-perception as well. So Koval Sketchbooks, I use his Pro Pro series, the one that uses Fabriano paper, cold press. Um, I do like Arsha's paper and Sanders. Uh, they're a bit different, but um, I would pick either. And then there are other sketchbooks that are fairly good. I didn't, they didn't stick with me. I used to do also my own sketchbooks, not myself. I would pick the paper that I like, that would be Fabriano Artistico, for example, uh, or Sanders, and I would bring the sheets to a bookbinder. Uh, you have a charity bookbinder uh, where they employ uh, people with disabilities, and then uh, they make amazing books. You just tell them what you want, what quality you want from, from them, and they make amazing books in there. Wow. Um, so I used to bring, until I found Tom, or he found me <laughs> first, until I found Tom, I used to uh, order my own sketchbooks from this bookbinder uh, that I found 
in Singapore. That's fantastic. And that was my to-go because I just couldn't. It was never, the ready-made sketchbooks were just never good enough for me when I got on some kind of higher level in my sketching. So I, I'm going to take this opportunity to mention to people that I put together really good show notes. So anything that's mentioned here, including your your book builder and anything else, I will link to them. And uh, so be sure that if you're listening to this and you're in the in the subway or the metro or in your car or out for a run, and when you get back to wherever you are, you can check out the show notes and there'll be links to everything that we talked about, including the, the ink and the paper and the tools and everything. So I just wanted to make that, that note to people. And I can appreciate, I, I had a book made for me from a guy in, um, in the UK. And uh, in that case, I wanted, so I love cold press paper, but I love doing watercolor on hot press paper. And uh-huh. so he built me a, a hardcover hot press book, and it is fantastic. I've only done one thing in it because I, <laughs> I'm a bit too precious with the book, and I know I've got a problem with that. Um, but I have 60 other sketchbooks, so I, I'm, it's not that I'm not doing stuff, but um, I, am, I think I need to break it in. I need to get the book dirty or something. Have you, have you played with hot press at all, or is it I, I yeah. just I'm only cold press now? Yeah, uh, Tom sends me uh, sketchbooks to try out sometimes, and sometimes they're different paper. It always takes adjustment, but it's um, it's just a different approach, right? You get used to the paper, and you basically stick with what you used to, and that's all it is to it, right? Every artist, they're like, oh, that's the best paper. Actually, that's the one they used to. So if you look at the old watercolor masters, right, the, the modern ones that we all know, they all use certain colors and certain brands, not because they're particularly better than others. It's just because that's what existed when they started the journey, when they were getting used to these materials and what worked for them. So they, they still keep using them, you know, not because they're special. People tend to think that if an artist who is any good at this in the skill using a particular thing it means it's exceptional. That's actually not true. Uh, I'm using a sketchbook now. I'm not going to even mention it because it's a nightmare to work in for a person who is struggling with like the skill yet. <laughs> it's okay. going to be a really difficult book to paint in. Even I'm frustrated and I can draw on anything and I, I'm still I'm halfway through it's an A4 format so it's quite big there is okay. limited supply on the, of, of these on the market so I'm I bought everyone every sketchbook I found of that format of A4 and I'm gonna test them in the nearest like months and months and my god I'm suffering with this one <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna mention it because I don't like recommending things I don't enjoy using right. completely yeah but Tom's sketchbooks, they are completely worth the price for me, for sure. I'm going to get back to them as soon as I'm done with my experiment with large right. <laughs> sketchbooks, because it's a pain. Well, it's nice to move the bar around a little bit, right? And lower the bar <laughs> and raise the bar. Like, it's nice to, you need the contrast to appreciate how good his books are, maybe. Right? For sure. I think if you can make yourself draw on bad quality materials, if it's bad quality yeah. materials, and you can make your drawing really good using them, you will fly on professional materials. Just it was. It's going to be so smooth. <laughs> you know? What would you say is more important to you then, the paper or the paint? Oh, that's a tricky one. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to say the paint. I'm going to say the paint because how I use the paper depends on my skill. 
uh, not much on the paper itself. But if you have professional paper, no amount of child, child uh, like uh, watercolor for children will save your drawing. Like, no, it's going to be a disaster every time, <laughs> you know. It depends on the style as well. So some people make do with cheaper watercolors and they they do very nice art, you know. Um, I don't know. I'm just really picky. I, I prefer getting the best I can afford. Not the best that exists, the best I can afford. That's, that was always important for me. Because for me, touch and the feel, it's so important when I work. It's more important than the outcome. So quality materials, beautiful tools, uh, the ones that... You know, don't fall apart, don't scribble, don't scratch, you know, these things. They're so important for me because I get really easily overloaded uh, when there is some sensory input that I don't want. It's, I find it highly distracting. So I usually choose the materials that create a nice flow for the, or allow for a nice flow when I work with them. I, I would agree with you. I, I remember... I think the second watercolor set, and I'm 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 fairly new to watercolor, right? But the second set I got, I was playing with it, and I was. It took me six times, I think, with watercolor before I finally understood what it was trying to do and how I could work with it. But I think the second set of watercolors I got, um, when I put them on the paper, they looked like sun-soaked sidewalk paint. Like it was, it was chalky. <laughs> Everything was a little bit white. It was awful, awful, yeah. awful. But I, I, so I would agree that, and I've heard so many people say this, like if, if you have a limited amount of funds, then buy a smaller number of professional grade paints and don't Absolutely. buy 40 student grade paints. Absolutely. I, in fact, my minimum number of watercolors, I would always take with me that three colors that I can use and that's it. I learned, I limited myself on purpose. I just one day removed all the colors and I started from one. And then I added the second one that I can mix. And then I added the third one. And I can do anything with these three colors. Full spectrum, anything, you know. And when people ask me for the three watercolors I would buy, I usually give them these, like, options of the three. There are, there are different variants for different palettes. Some people like warmer, some people like colder. I like the colder palettes. Uh, but... If somebody is looking for really good quality watercolors, they're pricey, I would always recommend to get the very basic colors or the very basic sets. Unfortunately, the basic sets, actually the ones of like 6 or 12 or 24, they're not designed to be mixed well together. That's a surprising part that I learned. They might be horrible in mixing together. One would think that when you provide people, especially beginners, with a set of watercolors, they should work really well together. You know, they don't. They don't at all. So people like uh, Jean Dobby and uh, I think name is Jane Blundell has really good resources on watercolor uh, mixability and quality and colors. Uh, there are a lot of materials. It's worth researching. Uh, Jean Dobby has a really beautiful book on, uh, it's called Making Watercolor Scene. It's one of my absolute favorite books on color that I absolutely adore, where she uh, takes apart her own palette and describes how she built it and why she built it, which you can't really see in a lot of places, this kind of information. 
Uh, I'll have to check that out. I know I had Hazel Sohn on here, and she was incredible with her limited palette as well. And- she's the one. Yeah, she's one of them. I'm actually studying with her. I'm going to brag a little bit. I'm going to be studying with her in September in Florence. Wow. How amazing is that? It's <laughs> That's like I, I have several of her books, and the way I paint watercolor now, it's, it's not, it's a lot of it is thanks to her. I had I had a few mentors, but her books were just instrumental in me learning about color as well. Especially her last book, that limited palette one. Yes, it's just so good. Oh my god, it's a yeah. cheat sheet for anyone you know who doesn't want to learn uh, why colors work. You know, you just take the the ones she mentions and you just go with that. She's so good. I'm so thrilled to go and oh, that's so finally special. learn from her. Like to to soak the vibes, you know, because. Yeah. Maybe uh, you don't always have to learn everything from an artist you admire. You might be on similar level, a bit below, a bit above sometimes, but there's always something to learn. And I just want to see how she does that. because She's just amazing. This lightness of color and the way she portrays light yeah. is just so amazing. Well, just, yeah, when I, when I had her on as a guest, I just didn't want to let her go. Like she was talking to me <laughs> uh, and it was getting really dark where she was. So like all around her was getting darker and darker and all I could see was like her, her nose and her, and it was, she was disappearing on me, but I just, I could have spoken to her for hours. It was, uh, Cheshire cat. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So she was, uh, she was wonderful. And, and you bring up a really good point about the limited palette, like the, the, or limiting your colors. Right. And like, there are some paint companies that have these beautiful, like wooden palettes and they're intentional with the colors they're putting in. They may put like six colors, but they will mix well together. They're designed around a theme. What would you, so when you talk about the three colors, what kind of three colors or options do you think about when you're uh, suggesting colors to people? I like to pick, now I have a few numbers of these sets of three Mm -hmm. that I just tend to default to just because I have so many watercolors that I bought and I just need to use them. Uh, not hoard the materials right everyone not hoarding the materials without using them (laughs) Uh, so uh, one of the sets for example I have a red and yellow and then I have ultramarine and alizarine crimson so these three colors that mix really well together or instead of ultramarine I sometimes use cobalt blue for the reds, uh, for Aliz- instead of alizarine, I might take uh, some of the violets, violet pinks, you know, like uh, quinacridone pink or quinacridone rose or any or, or magenta, you know. The ones that I, I tend to use, they're not staining, they're single pigment and they're transparent. So they're easy to wash off if you made a mistake, all of them. They mix really well all together. They make up all the colors you want, including dark grays. Uh, some of the mixes don't me- don't make really nice dark gray, dark black, for example, like ultramarine and alizarine and uh, any of the transparent yellows like lemon lemon yellow. They make for really dark gray, so you can use it as a black as well. But cobalt doesn't make a really dark mix, which it's also fine. It creates really nice atmosphere for me. Right. And the darks are relative, right, to your lights usually. That's a uh, that's a good point. I, I tend to um, I don't tend to mix as much as I should, and I probably should start doing that more. 
like, you know, I, I've got a Payne's Gray that I use when I need it. And, you know, I, I have way too many reds. So I have a little tiny palette <laughs> and I can't decide on the red. So I, you know, I just, I, one of the recent colors I got was Quinacridone Rose, which I absolutely love. Beautiful color. It is wonderful. I want to use it for everything, but then sometimes it doesn't quite work. <laughs> and so I, I just, I can't, like the greens I've got sorted out, right? Like I'm, uh, you know, I'm a nature guy, sap green, um, hookers, like it, that's easy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the Viridian I have no interest in. You know, when it comes to the reds, I just can't decide. And I know I'm going to have to pin it down at some point, but I do always have a Payne's Gray just because mm-hmm. I don't mix as much as I should, but... Maybe yeah, I, I tend to mix my greens as well, but it's uh, just personal preference, really. I, I get overwhelmed when I have too much stuff around me, so I I, I leave it as an option. Uh, I won't show you my palette because it may, it may freak you out. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen worse. I'm sure I'm you have. I'm sure <laughs> I've seen such fossilized uh, <laughs> fossilized uh, palettes, you know, of other artists. Uh, not gonna throw names here, <laughs> Oliver. Oliver, do you hear me? <laughs> uh, yeah, and there are like layers of history on the palette. Yeah, Lucky. I can't. That is not mine. So mine is clean. I wash mine as well because I, I I work a lot of a lot with painting lights. So clean okay. palette is extremely important for me. Yeah, it's there's a real. There's some people that, like I guess you and me, who really clean the palettes, and other people it's sacrilege. You you what? You you got rid of paint without putting it on paper? I'm so wasteful. <laughs> Be wasteful with your paint, people. Yeah. There there to waste your paint, not in the sink, on the paper. Just use more of it. They don't have to clean up a lot of it. I don't have to clean up a lot. I use my paint. <laughs> so let's talk about brushes. Brushes. Okay, uh, okay. For urban sketching, for a long time, I used whether pencil brushes because they hold, I think on the market, they are the best average brush that I found. And they hold the tip so well. So I would usually pick the biggest one as well because I, it's... Do you mean the Pentel... Pentel, like, you know, these trans- water brushes, these transparent water brushes that you fill up with water. So I think Pentel is, yeah, exactly. So I picked the biggest one because it holds the tip so well, you don't really need the small ones unless you like the min- doing the miniatures. I don't. I like the quick. I like the quick. I don't like digging into tiny details. And then, uh, so I used that one for a really long time and I tried all kind of brushes. They were always not, just not good. And then I found Holbein, which quality-wise is absolutely horrible <laughs> because it loses its tip after two days of work, especially on professional watercolor paper. Um, it becomes like that, you know. I heard that you can dip it in hot hot water so it reinstates the tip oh. i'm gonna try that but i've seen it working so if the tip goes a bit wonky you dip it in uh really hot water and it's kind of straightens up huh. but that brush gives away water so well that i just prefer not to have a thin tip over having enough water on my paper 
because there's nothing more frustrating for me than rubbing the brush against the paper. It's just too abrasive. Right. Yeah, so for a long time I was also using these. So I have like a whole stock of these brushes because they go fast. <laughs> you know, it's it's a bit wasteful because it's also plastic and they go back bad quite quickly. Maybe every few months I take a new brush. But these are the two go the two go-to brushes that I use for urban sketching. And then if I can sit down, if I can sketch with a normal brush, I would always choose that. Always, anytime. Yeah, I I do love the Pentel water brushes. I'm the opposite, though. I tend to use the tiniest one because I do smaller yeah. pieces in an A6 book. I have. And I like, I, like the, <laughs> I like the detail. You like your details, yeah. yeah. I, I just I don't have the patience for that. So <laughs> I don't blame you. I admire people who can sit and do the tiny things. I just know I move on really quickly. Well, I, I admire the people that are willing to take a big brush with a big bunch of paint and throw it at the paper. I'm like, yeah, like that, the one you're holding. It's, it's, huge. <laughs> it's huge. I have those. I rarely use them. But uh, I, I'm always a bit more cautious and um, maybe It's a I comfort zone as well, right? Isn't yeah. it? It's also a comfort zone because the bigger brush seems uncontrollable. I consciously pushed myself to use bigger paper and bigger brush so in... Three months, I took myself from B5 sketchbook to uh, half a sheet paper, watercolor paper with big brushes. Yeah, I've challenged myself to that. I'm going to, I'm going to take the same challenge. Once I, I've got, I've got a course I'm doing now. Once I'm all done that, I've got some watercolor and some oil and acrylic, but I'm going to do a large watercolor piece because I haven't done that. I haven't done a large piece. So it um, takes some getting used to like a few spoiled pieces and you're done. You you're there, you know, your brain adjusts so quickly to, to that. So you wouldn't go smaller than than A4 at this point? Like you uh, live for A4 and I bigger? think I would struggle with B5, but I w- could do that. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to show you my palette. Oh, beautiful. Too many reds. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And the other, the dark ones are... Uh, the dark all, ones are like... all greens. Uh, no, there's uh, like the top one is um, uh, there's a green and the top one is a Payne's gray. Uh, ah, okay. Payne's, because Payne's gray the whole here. area looks really dark to me with yeah, all these it colors. Does, it does look dark. Can't it's really so clean. It, but <laughs> <laughs> it is clean. And these all come out, right? These are all magnetic. Yeah. So yeah. I just move them around. But uh, brilliant. that's my, it's it's so small. Like I can. Yeah, I've seen those. Uh, those are brilliant, but uh, they don't work with these brushes. Yeah. No. <laughs> No, so I, I had have... to get like a, a big palette for myself with like these big cuvettes for the color so I can just go in, you know, and do that. Yeah, I've got, I have one of those big ones, but I, so I have a full-time job and so I, I have this little kit I bring to work and I go sit in the cafeteria or yeah, sit outside. And... Absolutely. I have a small kit as well and it has more colors that I need in there, uh, you know, but uh, <laughs> I, I do have that in my bag as well. I'm glad you're revealing that you're... That you've got these other things going on that uh, that are more than three colors. <laughs> so oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm guilty, right? I limit myself, and it's an effort. I, I I think maybe I make it sound effortless that oh, I just go and do that. It is not like that. I was walking around big format for months, months, and I still remember time which was February when A3 looked massive to me, and I just couldn't get enough color density on it to fill it up. <laughs> you know, I've really struggled. Like it was a struggle. 
It's just I'm also quite stubborn when it comes to things that don't turn out well when I do them. I like doing things well, so I get annoyed at myself and I go for it. You know? <laughs> it's not a bad quality, but it can be quite stressful as well because it's not a healthy attitude, you know, right. to everything. Not everything yeah. needs to be done well, right? Right. Exactly. I it just needs I tell to be. <laughs> it just needs to be done. <laughs> Just yeah, do the thing. Don't worry about it. Better yeah. done than perfect. That's my new motto. Recently. Absolutely. Question I have for you around um, the watercolor tools then is, is, do you ever use gouache? I attempted to, but it just never stuck around. It feels like gouache is for perfecting your sketch, right? Uh, like if you use watercolor, you use gouache to color over the areas that you don't think are successful, that's what I bought it for, and I tend not to use that because just it's one more step that I don't need to do. I just forget it. Right. So my gouache, the only blob of gouache on my palettes, dried out and fell out <laughs> eventually because yes, I, I used it like a, no, I used it a few times, uh, but it cracks. You know, when you put it in your palette with other watercolor, it starts cracking and dissolving. Um, very quickly, so it just creates a lot of mess, and I'm not okay with that. So no, I never. I I'm curious about the medium, but it seems like an unnecessary step to me in what I do. Yeah, I use a little bit of white gouache because I tend to draw animals. So if if I don't leave space for reflection on a the skin of a toad, I'll come in with a little bit of white gouache and. Yeah, that's, for sure. That's the patch ups help. I use Posca markers for that. Okay. Uh, which have. Um, they have acrylic paint inside, white acrylic okay. paint, and the beauty of that that you can paint over this, these highlights afterwards. So uh, a normal, a lot of people use the gel pen, right, for the white, right. but it washes right off when you when it gets damp. So yeah. Posca pens don't; they are solid acrylic. Once it's dry, it's absolutely dry. So you can put a coat of watercolor over it, so it's not so stark and doesn't look blue if your painting is warm for example so i just use that one. Oh, that's interesting i've i i do have a jelly roll pen that i i use like for my, if i'm just doing an ink piece yeah this one's yeah. and uh i hate them it's it's like it's like they want all the material on the paper whether it's the ink or the paper they want it in the little roller ball at the end so they plug up so easily i just get yeah. so frustrated with them because they're brilliant <laughs> for a little bit and they're like i want it all i want to hold it all and it gets all clogged up and i just they frustrate me so oh yeah much. i throw away the the white pens all the time that's uh, i think it's just you deal with that you just get a new one that's it posca ones are a bit more expensive than gel pens and uh, these yeah. uni pens but uh, yeah, to me it's just worth it i don't know works i never used that full one <laughs> it always dries before yeah yeah and you can't like i think i've got a an eight whatever i you can't get much smaller because it just it's too thin it dries up it's useless but so i wanted to ask you about your your drawings or your uh, when you start your work are you doing it in pencil or do you go directly to ink with the lamy See, I'm extremely impatient so the amount of time i can hold my attention on something even remotely interested, you know, is very limited. So I have to just, as we say, get the bull by the horns right away. So no pencil for me. Because if I've done drawing with a pencil, I'm going to be so bored of that after that. So there is no way I'm redrawing it with a pen. 
So I taught myself to, in order to finish the scene much quicker and be able to move on as quick as I possibly humanly can, mm. I learned to use pen straight away and then watercolor on top. Sometimes I do watercolor first and then pen on top. Sometimes I mix them up. Whatever my hectic mind suggests to do at the moment, that's what I do. Like I have no structure in that, absolutely. But no, no pencil. Just one extra step that makes you feel secure but have you ever noticed that you draw a line, you're not happy with that, you, re you erase it, and then you draw that line exactly in the same place? All over again, over again and over again. You know, so I, no. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying, because my first thought was, you know, I, I used to mountain bike a lot. And the, the rule of mountain biking is don't look at the tree you don't want to hit. Because as soon as you look at the tree you don't want to hit, you're going to hit the tree. And it's the yeah. same thing when you draw a line. If you look at the place you don't want the line to be, that's where it's going to go. So yeah, it's uh, same sure. thing. Yeah. Uh, do, do you do any digital work or are you strictly, uh, like, do you play with, because I know there's people that, that do a lot of um, work with, and I'm thinking more around, not, not around your the designer work that you used to do, but more around your personal work. Do you use an iPad or do any kind of digital work? Uh, I use iPad for commercial illustrations, uh, for like quick illustrations for people's presentations. I do these funny little cartoons that I never published anywhere. <laughs> and then uh, I use my iPad for uh, drafting the mural, mural designs. That's the only thing. So I don't do it for sketching per se or for my own art. Uh, for me, the feeling, the old-fashioned feeling of a pen in on a paper is what makes the whole process worse to me. It grounds me. Uh, so the digital never stuck. I grew up without digital tools. I got my first phone when I was 17 or 18 or even probably 19. So no, <laughs> that's not something I got used to quickly. I can uh, I can appreciate that. I'm probably I'm I'm older than you, and <laughs> I uh, but I, I do love digital. But um, I appreciate the scratchiness, especially with a fountain pen on cold press paper. Oh, so nice! And the yes. fountain pen also makes you draw slowly because you can't do just like whatever with a fountain pen. It's gonna skip right. So yeah, it grants me in the process, which for me it's extremely important. That's the only time I can focus if. I just go steady, slowly looking at something, you know, step by step. Do you load up like a couple of pens just in case? No, I tend to I tend to run out of them in the most inconvenient situations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I started to bring some of my collectible pens with me just in case. So I end up with way too many in my pockets. And I still use, whenever I have extras, I never run out of the primary one. Never. Right. As soon as I forget the extras, I definitely gonna run out of the ink. <laughs> and then trying to find a place that sells platinum carbon ink and yeah. No, I usually have some other tools so I, I, I can sketch without pen altogether. I really like the direct watercolor kind of approach as right. well. And so that makes it really easy to just go with I take it as a challenge, you know, you go with what you can. Do you play with other mediums? Have you played with acrylics or oils or I did. I used to paint in oils when I just started urban sketching, and I'm thinking of uh, returning to some of the mediums. Uh, I do like dry pastels and uh, oil pastels as well. 
really like those. Uh, maybe not in my sketchbook because these are not this are not something that is easy to carry out, and you need to fix it before you close sketchbook. I don't like when pages get stained, you know. And so I, I do play. I feel it's important to become better in the medium that you primarily use to learn from artists who do something different from you. Instead of learning from the watercolorists only, I tend to try and learn uh, from people who use oils or do abstract work or use acrylics, you know, because the sequence tend to be a bit different. Since I don't have a formal art education, it makes it really, really easy for me to borrow uh, bits and pieces here and there because why not, right? Whether if you studied art uh, in a fine art school, for example, and if, God forbid, it was academic study, you know, like it would be in Russia, uh, the uh, notion of using white in your watercolors or, you know, what you can and not, cannot use in your work is just too prohibitive and you just end up with a lot of blocks. I don't have that and I love just mixing in things in my sketches. And I just use whatever I have under my hands. I use colored pencil, pencils if they are just in my pocket. You know, I will use them. Why not? That's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> do you uh, do you miss sketching or drawing or painting when you don't? <sighs> it's okay question. to be honest. <laughs> uh, I know. I I'm, I don't think I take long enough breaks to miss it. I just I don't paint because I I can right I don't I paint because I can't help it I have to I have to draw I have to paint so when I start missing it I start drawing but I try to what I try to do if I if I take some rest from painting it's always great to just resist and not paint because that creates that creative tension that one might often need to just come up with something new or just to push yourself on a new level. And also we need these breaks from painting to, for our brains to uh, catch up a little bit. You know, especially if, if I was studying somewhere, if I did a lot of work, uh, a few days or a week or two weeks or even a month of break from drawing can help my brain to catch up with the knowledge. And when I come back after like one or two wonky sketches, I actually tend to go on a whole next level with my skill after a rest. So painting every day might not necessarily be a good idea if you want to grow. It depends on the purpose. I've been doing a whole bunch of graphite drawing because I'm doing a course and I'm going to be done in about three or four days and then I'm not going to do graphite for a few weeks. <laughs> Have you tried liquid graphite? I, I, I have water-soluble, but I haven't tried liquid. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, water-soluble. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's a blessing. I don't know how, like, if you sketch with graphite, you know, it takes so much time to fill up a sketch with the water-soluble graphite. You do it as watercolor. You just yeah. fill up all the main areas, and then you add the, the sketching, you know. <laughs> yeah, my, my sketches, I think, like, so if I'm doing urban sketching, I'm not using, because the, the thing I don't like about the water-soluble graphite is it's really dull. Like, I, I don't... Quite, yeah. Unless I have, yeah, like, unless I have color in there, it, it it's too dull for me. Like, the contrast isn't high enough. But if I've got color in there then I'm all for it. Like Paul Heaston, it, when he uses when he uses uh, his mixes of, of inks and stuff like that, it looks wonderful. But um, 
when I'm doing graphite pieces, I tend to just do graphite. And my graphite pieces are really detailed. So it's not urban sketching. It's me drawing. You enjoy the details, yes. <laughs> yes, I, I, that's, and, and I took some time in preparing for this course, but I would go out and I would just, I would go to the, the river and I would go to draw birds. And then I would see a really interesting rock and that's what I would draw instead, because I just wanted... That's awesome, right? Yeah, like, that's the thing, is it's don't be bound by the subject you intend to be surprised by the accident in front of you, right? Like, it's... I know. I still feel the process, the process is still more important than what you end up with. Before we get... I want to ask you about teaching, but I'm wondering, is there a place in the world that you would like to visit and sketch that you haven't yet? Ooh, everywhere. <laughs> yeah Sorry, maybe I, I I, want... i'm gonna say maybe uh peru or mexico oh. i've never been in that part of the world anywhere in the americas but uh, visiting uh, these colorful cultures must be really fun to sketch yeah that's a good that's, that's why a good i would point. love to go I, I don't mean to suggest this like you're gonna tell me in a week uh mike i'm going to peru um so... <laughs> No, I'm going to Italy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right, <laughs> and then Peru. But that's a, that's a really good point. I never really thought about uh, Peru. Uh, but you're right about the colors and Mexico and that part of the the world um, and their celebrations and their festivals. Actually, yeah. my big dream is to work with an organization that uh, works with kind of indigenous cultures and their preservation and do a sketch reportage or a series of artworks in these places where the masters who create these objects, right, they, they like the they paints, I don't know, the masks or create the kites. Like in Malaysia, there is a place where they create the kites and spend time with these craftsmen and paint them working with that kind of organization. So that's my uh, little uh, wish into the universe that I didn't get around to implementing yet. But I would love to do that. I love watching people at the work uh, you know, of their passion or, you know, their family business, whatever they're doing at craft precisely. So maybe someone listening to this <laughs> would know how we can take this further. And if you do, absolutely. reach Please out to write out. me an email. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> send me a, um, yeah, send me a DM, like whatever fits you. <laughs> Please that do. That would be fantastic. You, you've done a lot of teaching uh, you're still doing teaching? I do a little bit. I'm trying to get away from that. Uh, uh, when I realized, uh, my friend once uh, uh, said that uh, she wants to be a teacher, uh, a painter, uh, an artist who teaches, rather than uh, a teacher who paints. Uh, it's my good friend, Susan Orlish. Uh, she's also an artist. So, And uh, it stuck with me. And I realized that, yeah, I, I want that. So pivoting from uh, a full-on teaching to more of a fine art is my goal. And teaching right now, it's more of like an ongoing way for me to process what I'm doing rather than uh, teaching on its own, in itself. So I'm through teaching, I'm testing my own ideas. Uh, I'm sharing things as well, but I don't do it on a regular basis. The only place where I'm... Uh, regular with me sharing something about uh, how I do my art is my Patreon, but that's the only place where I'm consistent. And my workshops are just 
pop up now and then when I have time and energy to, to do that, which happens more and more rarely, unfortunately. How's teaching been? Do you, like, do you enjoy it as much or differently than you know, when you back, went back to Moscow? Um, it was when you back, went to back, back to Moscow, right, that you started teaching? Uh, yeah. Like, comparing it to back then... Are you enjoying it more at this point because the content is like what's teaching been like as a matter of experience for you? Do you do you enjoy it? Do you feel it's taught you something? Absolutely. Uh, you learn from your students as much as you they learn from you because they come up with all kind of creative solutions that you haven't thought about and also ask questions that you haven't thought about answering, you know. And tough questions as well. I have very smart students uh, who ask me really tough questions. And it takes me a few days up to a few weeks to answer them and say, okay, hold on, I need to think about it. So it teaches you about your own practice as well. Uh, For me, also learning how to paint and talk at the same time became crucial since I record the videos when I paint for Patreon, right? I record the videos and I prefer talking right away rather than recording a voice over afterwards. That was very steep learning curve because I I can't focus on painting when I talk. But uh, the difference, I think, was when I was in Moscow and I was teaching, I tried to teach people what I thought they want to know. Now I teach people what I enjoy doing. And there is an absolute difference in difference in how it feels for me as a teacher as well, because now I enjoy it so much more. And uh, if a person comes to learn from me, that means they're on their own with me on my journey, you know. And it just they are more curious for that. Uh, they are more usually prone to experimenting and discovering something new with me, because I'm also experimenting on them as I do that, right? So it's a completely new level. It's still quite draining because you put a lot of energy out there because that energy is also part of the reason people come to an artist to learn something from them. And if that energy is not there, they're not going to return because the energy is the primary thing they come for. Uh, The knowledge, sure, but the knowledge is not as important often. You said something really powerful there because I'm in the middle of doing this course and I was really struggling because it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to teach you like an atelier, right? Like I, I'm not going to be able to teach you about this. And then partway through this, I realized, wait a second, I'm not teaching that. I'm teaching me. I'm teaching what I do and how I do it. Exactly. And out of everything we've spoken about and all of it's fantastic and powerful, that hit me like a like a ton of bricks when you said that right there because it just that's what I just went through and I was it's it's a struggle. But you're right, like the knowledge it's not intellectual property. Like you can go find it here or there. It's exactly. how it's delivered, it's it's the experiences, it's the stories. Exactly. And to the basics, you know, it's really easy to teach the basics and make make money out of that. Like teaching beginners is literally the easiest job a person can do, even if they're very new to art. They're always students who are worse than them and they can teach them something. It's really easy, but it's also so boring, you know. And uh, I always find that I'd rather give a link to some new resource where it's all spelled out, you know, because it's everywhere. Why would I repeat something that's already there everywhere else, you know? Or I would refer to a book, or I would refer easily to another artist who likes teaching the basics. 
you know, and I would say, you know, these these people are really good if you really want a skill, like an academic wise or something. You know, uh, with me, you you can't get it because I'm not interested in that anymore at this stage. So I don't necessarily teach beginners. I uh, I have a class that is more mindful painting with watercolor, and then there I accept beginners because it's not teaching them to paint. Is the process of relaxing through watercolor. It's very different, right? Sure, they'll come up with something fairly beautiful, but maybe not. <laughs> you know, that's not my aim. My aim is to get them immersed into the process of artistic creation, but not to teach them how to draw lines. No, no. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> I like to hear that. Because um, I, I think that's important. I think you're right. It's the process, right? And and the process is important because I know I've been through so many pieces where you get partway through and it's like, oh, I'm going to have to rip this one up. This one is not, it's not going like I planned. It's not what I expected. But if you just treat it as a process, you'll get to a point where it's it's okay. Just don't give up on it. Push through. You'll learn one thing. You'll learn two things. Maybe one thing you'll do again. Maybe three things you won't do again. But it's exactly it is a process, right? Exactly. And also, if your aim is to create a perfect picture, then you're not going to be learning. You're going to learn how to create that particular picture and you'll struggle with that and you'll never be quite satisfied. But if your aim is to grow and just record things in the process, that's a very different aim, right? It distracts you from the perfection and you end up practicing much more. I think it's a much healthier attitude to the process than like, okay, I have to make it good, you know, now. No, you have to spoil as much paper as you can in your life. Like, get a stack and start going through that. Like, see dwindling, you know. <laughs> or see your sketchbooks build up. And don't please don't throw away your sketchbooks. Because now I look at my sketchbooks 12 years ago. It's amazing where I got. And it's not that my sketches were bad. They weren't at all. They were just so different. I can see my human growth through my sketchbooks not just an artist, you know. And it's fascinating. So uh, never throw away your sketchbooks. And even if the paper's awful, like the one we won't talk about. Doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I'm going <laughs> to finish that sketchbook because I have one sketchbook at a time. That's my thing. I can't... Okay. There was time when I really struggled to finish a single sketchbook. Like, I couldn't. I had several of them, and I loved starting them. I never had a problem starting a sketchbook. I never had a problem with the first page. What I had a problem with is finishing them. So I ended up buying a really small, moleskin sketchbook, like a pocket size. And that was the first sketchbook I ever finished. And after that, I did not allow myself to ever have two sketchbooks at a time. It's always one, and it's all consecutive. <laughs> <laughs> it's all one after another, every drawing, as I draw, I don't skip pages, I just keep going, I flip the page over, I forget about the previous sketches, and I start every page anew. That's how I work now. I admire you, I can't do that. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, it's a bit twisted, it's not a right thing to do necessarily, I... You, you do you, do you right? That's, for me, as a person who was never able to finish anything in their life, you know, except for music school, <laughs> and with the help of my parents, the university, you know, I, for me, being able to finish something, that was the only mm -hmm. thing that I, like, I could congratulate myself on. So it was, I, I made it a point to keep doing that. I used to do it a lot more because I didn't, f I couldn't find a sketchbook with good hot press paper. 
And when I finally found one, because I like to do, I'll do a piece in pencil or I'll do a piece in watercolor. And I wanted something that was hot press so I could do both because you can't really do pencil on cold press well. I finally found a sketchbook, a company that makes them that are not too expensive. And they're, uh, the company's Etcher. I I see that because I'm Oh, I love them. Isn't the perfect sketchbook? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I use the small, good. I use the small little white ones, which is just the, the average ones. But I use it with the hot press paper. I really love that sketchbook because I'm able to use it for everything. I could do graphite on one side, and I could do watercolor on the other. But I really like the moleskin sketchbooks because the paper is like vanilla. It is beautiful for yeah, drawing. So good. So I use that one for my graphite pieces that are more yeah. finished. And then I have the little tiny one, and I'm going to show you it. People won't see this here. They have this little tiny little thing, which oh, is the, the same paper, skin. but it's a little tiny. Uh-huh. But it's 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 so it's almost like vellum, but it's it's tiny and I can fit it in my little kit. So I carry three sketchbooks. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in my mind, they have different reasons. They exist differently. But um I I did start finishing sketchbooks and I agree that being able to finish a sketchbook is empowering. It's empowering. I ne- I could never stop after that. I did not have trouble finishing them anymore. But actually, you reminded me that I do have a second sketchbook. I use it for... Uh, I, it's Tillman and Burns sketchbook, uh, one of them, with, uh, I think, ivory paper. Uh, it's not too thick. So it's amazing for sketches with a pencil. And I do black and white pencil sketches there for uh, whether my paintings or just from imagination. So I use and, that. And no one uh, sees those. Just it. No. I posted it <laughs> once, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I'm very secretive, you know. It's like there are things I'm... I feel like because I have so many followers on Instagram, uh, I stopped at some point doing things for me. So now I'm trying to reconnect back to me. So I established myself as a fine artist and it took me a while and it took a whole adjustment for my audience as well because they're so used to me being a sketcher. The sketchbook look, uh, look the sketchbooks look really good on Instagram, right? Everybody loves them. I get lots of likes whenever I post my sketchbooks, but that's not who I am anymore. It's what I do as part of my art, but it's not who I am anymore. So I had to reshuffle things and I had a drastic reduction in activity in there because of that. So now it's starting to get back on track. Uh, And I felt like I spent so much time in there being public with what I do about my art that now it's time to sometimes do something that's just for me. Right. I do share these things. Okay, there is a small group of group of people I do share it with. These are my patrons on Patreon. They see everything I do, every single bit. As soon as I get them, as soon as I draw it, like yesterday, I went on the coast and I, I did some sketches. They see all of them, but the majority of people on Instagram mostly see my fine art now. A little bit of sketchbooks, <laughs> you know. So I feel like. Keeping it close to myself helps me to just deal with the whole publicity kind of thing. And you do need things to do on your own as well, for your, just for yourself, not to think, is it going to be liked? You know, is it going to be accepted? Is it going to look good? You know, I don't care. I just want to do some things without thinking about that. And then once I'm comfortable doing them, once I'm in that track of being comfortable with the process, I can share it without uh, being conscious that so many people are watching. So you've mentioned Patreon a few times. How's that experience been for you? It's been great. Uh, I have a small group there. It's Cozy. 
and they're very engaged. They are people who support me in sick and thin. You know, I've been sick and uh, I don't usually share kind of struggles on Instagram that much. Uh, my patrons know what it is to be an artist for me, how hard it's been, how, what was the challenges, like my ups and downs, my problems with mental health. I address all of that. I talk absolutely honestly about all these experiences there because that's my safe place place in random people don't go and don't there, you know so it's right. <laughs> but uh, it's very safe space for me to share these things i'm still okay sharing that on instagram sometimes but right. i don't feel as comfortable uh, putting it into the big world necessarily yeah i agree so patreon was uh stable for me and it's uh it's stable and slowly growing and it's also was a motivation for me when i could can couldn't do anything at all when i wasn't well when i just quit my job i wasn't well i couldn't sometimes i would just wake up and not being able to get uh, out of bed so the patreon and needing to post there once a week was my kind of what's the maximum work that's like what's the Barest minimum that I can do this week to feel like I, 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 I'm going in some direction of where I want to be. And that was a post for Patreon. And there are people, there is monetary kind of validation of what you do as well. Because people who join you there, they are the people who appreciate you the most. Because they put the money behind the, the words, right? Right. Because it's not difficult to like a post or write a comment. But to actually put an amount of money behind your support, that's the real support. I do that, like, that, that's how I, I know that I actually support a person where I don't mind paying. I've been struggling with Patreon because I, I, I did one to support the podcast because there's expenses in this. I don't have sponsors. So I wanted uh, kind of some help with that. And I've had some wonderful Patreon people that have been with me from the beginning, some people come in and out. Um, I want to do more for them, and I've been rethinking how to do that. I think I have a way forward, but um, it, it does feel more, as you say, more cozy, more personal, and uh, I, I'm going to ask you later on where people can find you, but for sure I'm going to include a, a link directly to your Patreon as well because you. Uh, some people are really interested in those stories, not the Instagram. So, what, do you, what do you do for your Patreon that's different? So. I haven't done a whole lot is the thing, right, is is I had started it and I had intentions and uh, I had sent prints out to people um, initially and I haven't really done a whole lot apart from just asking people to support the podcast, right? So what I'm doing uh, moving forward into September is I'm going to be doing some complete pieces where I record audio, video of everything, right? So I'm doing a single That's piece. That's what I was of... going to suggest to you. You can cut it out, right? <laughs> just, no, uh, no, it's okay. Yeah. I'm going to leave it in. It's uh, okay. So I, I am going to do that, but my thinking is, because I want to do more on YouTube as well, uh, is that I would do like an hour and a half or something, and I would draw and talk and, and paint and do whatever, and I would post that for my Patreon people. And then I would take like a 10-minute segment of that, like together, and I put that on YouTube. Yep. And so that way I can feed, because I had Jake Parker on who uh, created Inktober. And what, the, the thing that stuck with me is whatever you do, whatever you make, try to find multiple uses for it. Oh, yeah, so if you do. Absolutely. And so that's what I'm thinking of doing with my Patreon going forward. Because I, I feel like I'm beholden to these people <laughs> to give them more. And I've struggled with my day job because I've I, I got a bigger role 
recently, and that's what got me to quit. Well, it's and I'm <laughs> got a bigger role. <laughs> I, I'm three years from retirement, and so it's like, okay. oh my I god, just need to get through. <laughs> Hold on there. Uh, so, but but I've I've mentioned this in the podcast before that the way I've looked at it now is that I'm an artist first, and that my day job is what I am second, and that mm-hmm. yeah, I'm still struggling with in my head, but it makes me feel better about the skin I'm in when I think mm-hmm. about myself that way. Then your job becomes a tool to supply for, uh, yeah. like, to, to supply the base for your uh, artist's work, right? So that's yeah. how I try to treat my job when I already started struggling, is it was the means to an end. So I had an, a goal, and once you have a goal, especially if it's definite, like, I don't know, whether it's financial, like I need this to get there, you know, so I need my job to do this to get me there. And when you have that goal, it becomes a bit easier, a bit easier to tolerate if there is any friction uh, at work. Uh, I mean, I really struggled. So for me, creativity was uh, an outlet because I got promoted from a creative position to more or less uh, people managing position. And that did not play well because I'm just, I barely managed myself. Right, I'm in the middle for being tested for ADHD, so I barely manage my own resources, you know, and let alone people's resources, right. <laughs> you know. So I and it fell into a pandemic, so it was an absolute disaster. I hated it. I had night. I had nightmares when I got offered that position. I had nightmares, and I still took it, and I regretted every single bit of it. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've had some sleepless nights in the last few weeks just because of some things happening at work and I didn't mean this to become this kind of interview but this is what artists deal with, right? This is It's important, right? So many of us start with uh like juggling both things and we don't start a side job because we are completely happy with what we are doing at work, right? Like let's face the uh, this honestly here. I loved my work, but I loved drawing much more, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, and that's why we're doing something in parallel because it it just draws us in yes. and holds us there. That's the only way you get any extra energy after work to do what you do. Like you're sitting there at night recording a podcast for people, and it's not paid job, right? You do it because you want to do it, right. because you want to have these conversations. I, it takes so much extra internal drive and the love for what you do to do that. It's so funny you say this, and and uh, because I had stopped the podcast in July to take a break, right? I wanted some time to just think about my art, think about, you know, take some time off. I thought about not doing the podcast anymore. I thought... You know, I've, I've done it for four years. Should I stop? Should I focus on making my art? And then I didn't say anything to anyone about it. But then I started getting messages from people saying, I really enjoyed this episode. This was wonderful. Or I, I'm looking forward, like, can can you uh, speak to, to Aliona and, and have her come on the podcast and talk about her journey? And, I'm, and everybody's talking to me. And it's like, I, I started this for me. I started so I could learn. People are there. People are there for you. <laughs> yes, they're waiting in the theater, and I, 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 I have to remember that this isn't just about me anymore. And so I did struggle with that. I was thinking, why am I doing this? Right? I need to, um, I need to make art. But I'm a creative, and part of being a creative is doing the podcast. Part of being a creative is running a Patreon. So I, I'm here doing it again. 
and I love doing it. I love speaking to people like you and hearing your stories. And you know, I'm it, it's it's almost eleven. Well, it's eleven o'clock here, and uh, I'm thinking I, I can't go to bed yet. I'm going to have to draw or paint for a little bit because <laughs> you get oh my inspired. Right? <laughs> no, yeah, that that's true. That's why I uh, booked your time in my morning. <laughs> I don't have to want to draw at night. <laughs> <laughs> Very selfish, you know. Being selfish as an artist was the most useful thing I learned for myself. You know? <laughs> Just do what you need to do. It is sure it's about your audience, but also it's actually not. It's about you and what you want and what your goals as an artist. Because unless you have your why and it's really strong, it doesn't matter what your audience wants. And sometimes also it's okay to take breaks, especially summer, you know. Yeah. Summer is the most unproductive time for so many businesses and taking a break is so healthy i did like a 20 piece collection in june in three weeks and after that i didn't paint for two months i couldn't i didn't want to so i didn't i didn't make myself why would i make myself paint you know i was tired 20 freaking pieces in three weeks you know (laughs) so what's your why why do you why do you paint um I paint to ground myself because my mind is so hectic that to be able to focus on something, on somewhere I want to go to, I need to, I need that presence, I need that silence in my head. And it just turned out that the only way for me to be able to do some kind of meditative, have some kind of meditative experience is to paint. So drawing was for me to silence these noises in my head for so long, and I didn't even realize it. And for me, it's also to channel what I see, how I see it, because I realize the way I see things is just so much more beautiful that for major- than, than it is for majority of people. And they see it, then they take a photo, and it's not there. So I paint it for them, you know? And I love sharing what I see, that the beauty of the light, the places where I go, the object that I have, you know? And I love sharing that beauty, that sunlight with the people. And I hope that it brings them calm in, you know, some kind of grounding in response. Because I want to share that calm. It's amazing to have it. For me, it's a rare thing. And for so many people in our hectic lives, it is a rare thing, you know, to, to, to be grounded enough to wake up and know what to do or be strong enough and be resilient enough to go beyond what you think is possible. Because everything is possible as long as you do it, you know, consistently. And to do it consistently, you need be, to be grounded, you need to find that kind of inner confidence, you know, the, your, your inner Yoda. <laughs> so that's that's my mission. And it just happens that I do it through art. I do it through talking to people as well. I don't have to paint to do that. I share that. I, I try to uh, like share my confidence in people when they create something, you know. Instead of saying you can't do that, I, I'm trying to just encourage them and give them strength and say, you can do anything, you know, like privilege or not, I, I'm not coming from a privileged background. Plus, I'm a Russian, right? And right now, it's the worst passport you can have. Like, in Singapore, I'm just white. I'm very privileged in Singapore. Once I'm out of Singapore, I have zero privilege, you know, so, and it doesn't matter. It never stopped me. It's just that sense of like, okay, breathe out, 
I can do that. That's what drawing and painting brings me. And I hope that I keep that quality in the pieces that I have after I've done it to myself. The artwork keeps that sense of like, ah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm so glad that we had a chance to chat at this time. Um, me too. This has been uh, meaningful for me as I go on my journey and, and looking at your wonderful works. And we'll talk about how to find those later. It's it's just, this has been a very special conversation. And before I get to the next step, which is asking you about homework, I have a question for you. I asked this of some of my guests, and I'm just curious what your response will be. So if you had the chance to have lunch with either a fictional person or someone who's alive or dead, whomever, it could be a, uh, somebody from a story, it could be anyone, and you had a chance to have lunch with them, who would you choose? I think at the moment that would be Henri Matisse. Uh, it's just, I want to talk to him. I, he was not just an amazing artist who experimented and struggled and pivoted. He did the travel sketching as well, by the way. He has amazing sketchbooks and like sketches from his travels to, I think, the Tahiti uh, that I've seen in a, in a gallery. He was an amazing artist with his own really complex journey, but he was also really good at maintaining relationships with his clients, with his collectors. And that's what I would talk to him about. <laughs> because for full-time artists, uh, sketcher or not, teacher or not, your client, your customers, your students, they all the amount of them and how they stay with you depends on the relationship you, you build with them. And it's not just a relationship of a teacher and a student. It's a personal connection. So I, I, I read that Matisse was really good at that. He would send photos of his unfinished work to his collectors, you know, and write letters and stuff. And I just find it really cool. And it's not something that artists nowadays do enough. Right. Successful artists do. That's how they become. They, they have, that's how they build the collector base, right? But uh, right. Uh, a lot of beginner artists don't think about their network being the most important part in their artistic career, whether they are a sketcher or a teacher or fine artist. And that's something I learned myself in the past several months as I was like learning to have an art business. Yes. But yeah, that would be him. So I'm glad because you mentioned a name that we hadn't talked about. So I'm so glad. Good. <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned Matisse. I didn't know that about him. And you bring up a really good point, even to the point of um, something that I'm going to be sending out this week, and that's a newsletter. I haven't sent a newsletter in weeks to my people. And that's a way to keep communication alive. And yeah. I that's one of the things I'm changing as I go forward as well, is the conversation with the people yeah, that I do have a newsletter as well and I like sharing just stories you know it's like blog but it's an email it's more personal yeah, a, a hidden idea. blog that I run and <laughs> not very good at as well <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is and as you say successful artists do it but they also hire people to do it and it is hard when you're by yourself when you're trying to do the art and do the business I, to make sure yeah you I, I have an assistant but oh. I create my uh, texts myself. So I post everywhere. I write my email, my own emails and I write my own posts. So she helps me with like the outside things, the admin and stuff. But okay. when it comes to actually talking to people who support me, 
that's going to be only me. I don't think I can outsource that. I don't think I yeah. want to lose that touch, you know, because they respond. They respond to my emails and my uh, posts, and we have whole conversations on the backgrounds, you know, in DMs and emails with some people. And I, I really enjoy that. Uh, there is no way I'm giving that up, you know. I'm, I'm going to outsource everything else, like accounting, you know. <laughs> Please <laughs> yes. take accounting from me, you know. And like the admin work that doesn't require the, my, my personal touch because artist is also, it's not just a brand, you're a person. And people are with you and support you because of who you are, not just because the art you do. Yeah, you've got to curate your artistic expression. Like you, you've got yeah. to do that yourself, and that's curated. Exactly, you. you just have to be you at yeah at any point. You can't replace it with a chatbot or uh, right. something else. You have to still have your own voice in there. Exactly. So I'm getting to the point where I uh, I like to ask about homework because I think people will be as inspired as you and I have been to, to each other and <laughs> want to try something. So I'm wondering what you would propose as a little bit of homework that a listener can try when they. When they're in front of their studio, in front of their sketchbook, or doing whatever, what would you propose as a bit of homework? Okay. I have a fun one. We all like buying tools. We love buying tools, right? <laughs> we all have more tools than we can handle, and there are some of them that you never, ever used. You bought it to try, and you're like, okay, I'll get to it, and you never did. So take it out and do a full sketchbook spread with that tool. Like, sketch what you usually sketch, but with the tool you never used before and wanted to try for the past five, ten years, you know? <laughs> I have those. <laughs> I like it. Now you make me feel bad because it's around <laughs> six or seven tools I could use here. Um, I'm playing with... Pick, a, pick one. Yeah, I'm playing with one in my hand right now. It's like, damn. Pick the um, one that you had for the longest. Well, that's tough. For me, it would be a liner cut. Hmm. Like for, I even have the plates cut. I just never printed it. <laughs> it's been six years ago. Oh wow! Yeah, I I've got a ballpoint pen. I I don't do enough ballpoint, so it's like I I bought a box of. It's a bit too close to what you already do now. You think so? I think so. It's very safe. Uh, don't go safe. Is no. it safe? Don't go oh, safe on me. No, don't go just like with another pencil that you just bought and haven't tried. No, no, well, no, no. that doesn't work. Different. I meant like something completely different. Completely different as a tool in a sketchbook. Yeah, like a big brush. We talked about before. That's a big brush. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So if it feels scary, that's the right thing to do, okay? Okay. That's like your indication that you're going to be so growing if it feels scary. So you do it scared. (laughs) Okay. I'll, I'll see. <laughs> I see you like, going like all panicked, you know. I see a panic attack coming. It's a really big brush. <laughs> Just like, oh my god, oh my god, so big. <laughs> okay, so maybe that is it. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe I was being too safe. Okay, I'll, I'll have to put some thought into that. I, I've, I, have, I do have big brushes. I, I may have the similar brush that you do. That's a yeah, big great. brush. Yeah, that's a big. If it, it seems bigger than you usually use, for sure. Just um, oh, this one's even bigger. I think. Actually, I wonder if this is. I don't know if you had a Da Vinci. Fantastic. Is it? That's a Da Vinci too. Yeah. My favorites are well. This one is Da Vinci Casaneo, and I really like the silver black velvet series. Yeah, this is a Casaneo size four. Yeah, they're good. They're synthetic um, brushes, and they're amazing. I. I try to get away from the natural brushes now. I don't think I've ever used this one. <laughs> yeah, no. There you go. Use one of yeah. them. 
Yeah, there we go. For you, you go direct watercolor. Just yeah. oh, so I shouldn't even <laughs> use ink. That's that's a double no, whammy can, there. You can use you can use ink. Yeah, you can use. Ink. Okay, okay, because I I do use uh, like I use um, one of these fountain pens with the food nib. Oh, I love that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have that one so, as well. That's the second pen that I have that I uh, use. Okay, yeah, I like uh, I like the flexibility of that nib having the the food aid. So I don't know. It's quite good, especially I, I, on hot press paper. Mm, so good. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. So okay, that's good homework. Okay, I, I'm off next week, <laughs> so look, maybe I'll try it next week. Look like you're not gonna do it at night. You're not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so I may have the homework done before this episode comes out. So uh, that's good. I like that homework. I really do. Uh, before uh, we say goodbyes, I wanted to uh, maybe ask you to mention where people can find you online. Okay, uh, that's easy. Everything is consolidated under alenagastaldi.art. That's my website. And you just go there and then there can be found uh, the social links and everything. Uh, my Instagram is at the moment my squiggles. I'm, uh, I think I'm known for that one. <laughs> uh, but I'm about to change the name to Elena Gastaldi in uh, a few weeks. It's a part of my, uh, my becoming a full-time artist officially. So not the squiggles. I don't do the squiggles anymore. I'm uh, Elena Gastaldi, the artist, you know. <laughs> and uh, that would mark the end of the full transition for me, which is really hard because my squiggles as a blog existed for over 10 years. Wow. And it's everywhere. So that link is everywhere. It's absolutely scary to just uh, let it go, but it needs to be done to let go of the past and just embrace whatever the future comes. So when this episode comes out, I will link to my squiggles. And then when it changes, I'll go in and change the show notes and link to your new one. Why was it ever called my squiggles? <laughs> I was just learning English and I was looking for a name that was a little bit ironic, not too serious. I didn't want it to be serious. I didn't think of using my name uh, because that wasn't serious at all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was, also very, it was also very long before I changed my surname. So um, it was uh, the squiggles and I asked my English teacher, how is my squiggles sound to you? What, what would it mean if I name it like that? And he told me that that's something casual that's a squiggle that you do just doodling you know uh, so if you want to be not too serious about what you do that's a great name so my squiggles was for a long time the handle i and the website that i had well it's it's good to be part of or here at the point when you've changed your journey and you're on a new path so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so glad, glad you're that here you... with me on that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really scary one, actually. It's very scary and, for the most part, very lonely uh, to do this because you're never sure. Right. However sure you act, you're never sure uh, that that's the right thing to do. And every time it's like, will it work? Will it work? Ah, look, it worked. You know, okay, right. it didn't. Look at that. <laughs> yes. And the people that are closest to you are like, you'll do fine. It'll be great. It's like, but it doesn't feel great. <laughs> I know. Tell me the truth. Uh, never, you're never there. And also, you know, you don't always have people who completely support you. And uh, there going to be a lot of people who are skeptical about your journey. Because taking yourself out of a comfort zone, you also change the comfort zone of people around you. They're used to you like that. They're used to you being you. I had feedback on my Instagram that, oh, I liked your sketchbook sketches more. You know, uh, but 
what can I do about that? <laughs> you know, right. It's not my journey anymore. And sure, I like them too, but now I like what I do now. So they're going to be always people whose comfort you are disrupting as a collateral damage when you change. And these people will always try to drag you back to their comfort zone, but it's not your journey. Uh, so you have to kind of push on, even though it's scary. That's, and it is really um, scary. <laughs> that's it, it's funny that you're doing this because um, I've I've asked people about how sensitive they are to what they post to Instagram. Like you've got a fairly large following on Instagram, and I love that you're like, I'm, it, I'm sorry, that's not my journey anymore. People have been scared to post stuff. It was hard. I actually created a separate account for a while for my fine art until I was talked into my senses, you know, by one person saying. That's, you're trying to like still stick to your past while trying to be your own self and you're creating this split in your in your feeling of yourself, right? And that's not going to do you any good. And I felt that this was so right. So I just deleted that account and I started to post everything that I posted there, here. And I do get less response, but also he was completely right. People who would support you on uh, your new journey their likes, their responses, their comments, even though they're much less of them, they're so much more important than right. the ones who just there for pretty pictures or very well laid out sketchbook with tools around because they keep trying to see what brushes you were using rather than appreciate you as an artist or just were passing by and saw a pretty picture and liked it and forgot about it. So your supporters, they're so much more important than this the passers-by who just happened to be there when right. you were who you were, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love this. So, Eliana, I really appreciate you coming on the show uh, and talking about your journey. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it was so wonderful getting to know you, um, hearing about uh, your journey and to where you are now. I'm so excited to see what's coming next for you. I'm hopeful that maybe uh, maybe we can touch base on the podcast in a year or two and see how things have come along and where you're at. Absolutely. And uh, we can chat a little bit more, but uh, I wanted to thank you again for your time and talking across the world. I just love the fact that we can do this and uh, kind of share awesome. share this moment in time with our journeys and then go off and do our things. So thank you again. This has been absolutely wonderful. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It was really nice talking to you, Mike. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your week and uh, hope we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Aliona and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 104. If you enjoy the show, please follow and then share with someone you think may find it helpful with their creative journey. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz provided by Kevin McLeod.